earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. Today we're up to session 16. We've devoted significant time in these sessions to scrutinize some well-known Bible passages, thinking they mean one thing, yet discovering that in their context they actually reveal something much different or something much deeper. If you missed any sessions or want to catch up, just go to faithtalk1360.com, search the menu for local program podcasts, then scroll to a word from the word. Friends, I've also been reinforcing a truth keyed to our present series. Oh, that verse means that. Reinforcing truths or reminding us of them is a good thing, right? Well, here's my reminder again. The Bible has a story to tell, doesn't it? In fact, it's crying out, screaming out to tell us its story. But sadly, many times we preachers, teachers, and pastors, as well as Christians in general, make, even force, or manipulate the Bible to tell our story. And whether we do this knowingly or unknowingly, I still say, shame on us. Well, friends, I'm calling session 16, If My People Do What? And we're going to plow through all the snow that's been built up and is covered over the road that leads to what I call a more proper and contextually accurate interpretation of, yep, Second Chronicles 7.14. You know it well, I'm sure. And I'll bet it's been embedded in your brain and you could right now quote it from memory. And chances are you'll likely quote verse 14, that one sentence, divorced from its historical context, divorced from its Israelite context, and even divorced from its Second Chronicles immediate context in chapters 6 and 7, and its slightly broader context of the book of Second Chronicles. So, friends, perhaps a healthy way to begin will be to let our fingers do a quick walkthrough, or even do a flyover of Second Chronicles. First, will be the understanding that First and Second Chronicles are one book in the Hebrew Bible, although two books in our English Bibles. And an interesting fact is that Chronicles was originally titled Devrea Hayamin in the Hebrew Scriptures, which roughly translates to words or events or even annals of the days or ages. Second, unlike our English Old Testament ending with the prophet Malachi, the Hebrew Bible ends with the Chronicles. Third, we might be tempted to question the need for the Chronicles, since the material it contains has already been covered in First and Second Kings, where we find the word annals multiple times in First Kings 14, 15, 16, and 22. Ah, friends, but the Christian with his or her dick 
detective's cap on, and your pocket magnifying glass in hand, and your Berean's mind activated, realizes that this is not just retelling of Israel history. Rather, it's a retelling with a different angle and with some different material added. And this is because the Bible authors aren't just historians, they're theological historians. But this does not mean they fudge history. No! They record history accurately, but under divine inspiration, they make their history also tell a spiritual story, and their spiritual stories are appropriate for the moments in time they are elaborating on. Fourth and finally, friends, early rabbis in Talmudic tradition assign authorship of the Chronicles to Ezra, the scribe and priest. The book of Ezra and the Chronicles just happen to have a similar style, vocabulary, and content. In fact, our English Bible book of Second Chronicles ends with a statement that is identical to the opening statement in the book of Ezra. Check it out! Ezra also played a significant role in the Israelite community of exiles returning from Babylon to Jerusalem under the auspices of Persian king Cyrus, who allowed the Jews to return in 536 BC. Imagine being in captivity for some 46 years and then returning to your homeland. A chronicler like Ezra would have some very important things to say to his fellow Jews. The Chronicles primarily record the period right after being exiled, in which the world at that time was under the control of the powerful Persian Empire. All that remained of the glorious kingdom of David and Solomon was the little province of Judah, whose monarchy was replaced with a provincial government. Despite the fact that God's people had been allowed to return home and rebuild the temple, they were still far removed from their glory days, their golden days, in other words, when David and Solomon reigned. So, our Second Chronicles was written expressly for the dual purpose of providing encouragement and urging those on who had returned to Jerusalem. Friends, this remnant needed prodding to keep their faith alive in the midst of difficulty, as well as renewing their hope for the future. Second Chronicles' emphasis on their spiritual heritage of David, Solomon, the temple, and the priesthood refreshed their memories that their God was still faithful and he would not forget them, and not forget his promises to David nor his promises to his chosen people. At the same time, Second Chronicles served as a strong motivator for God's people to adhere to Moses' covenant, its practices, so that the tragedy of Israel's past would not be repeated. From a reading of First and Second Kings, we learn that the Chronicles provided a different historical perspective, not a contradictory historical perspective, but one from a different vantage point, that is, a different political, geographical, and theological perspective. While first and second kings cover both kingdoms, Israel and Judah, the chronicles focus only on Judah. The theological perspective shifts as well. Whereas first and second kings come from a prophetic vantage point, the chronicles come from a priestly vantage point. In other words, from a felt needs point of view. So along this route, friends, we are discovering that the Chronicles are not simply a historical duplication of the journey of God's people, but rather a supplement to the accounts of First and Second Kings and First and Second Samuel. Our English Bible book of Second Chronicles 
Chronicles then may be divided into two sections. The first section, chapters 1 through 9, where our key text for today is found, outlines the reign of King Solomon. It also highlights the construction and dedication of the temple. The fact that it's not just Israelite history regurgitated is clearly seen by not mentioning Solomon's failure that's recorded in 1 Kings 11. Another fact differentiating these books, as I mentioned earlier, is that Second Chronicles concentrates almost exclusively on the southern kingdom of Judah. And our Second Chronicles traces the reigns of Judah's 20 rulers right down to their captivity in Babylon in 586 B.C., Second Chronicles concludes with the Persian king Cyrus to allow Judah's release to return to their homeland and Jerusalem. So, friends, let's now hear Second Chronicles 7.14 with our spiritual detective's cap on, our spiritual magnifying glass in hand, along with our Berean's mindset, and see what truth awaits us. Here, a traditional version we've all likely heard or read ourselves is, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Virtually all respected English translations share this wording. The 1917 Jewish Publication Society edition of the Hebrew Bible has, If my people upon whom my name is called... And a slightly revised wording appears in their 1999 edition of the Hebrew Bible, which says, When my people who bear my name. This wording also appears in the 2017 Christian Standard Bible, the CSB. Well, friends, I can say with just about 100% certainty that there's certain assumptions we Western Gentile Christians make when reading this verse, assumptions that have been burned into our minds. And I can also say with just about 100% certainty that when we quote this verse, we're not likely aware of how it fits into the overall story emerging from the first six chapters of Second Chronicles, as well as several chapters that follow. Have we even considered how this soul sentence was understood by its original audience in light of the Israelites' history and culture? After all, friends, a verse whose meaning and application seem straightforward when we quote it in isolation may in fact mean something significantly different when viewed or reviewed in its context. Recall what I've been saying in the beginning of these sessions in our series. I'll just share one pertinent phrase as a review. Sadly, many times we preachers, teachers, and pastors, as well as Christians in general, make, even force, or manipulate the Bible to tell our story. <laughs> All the while, the Bible is crying out to tell us its story. So I've been saying, shame on us. Pastor Nick Smith and his wife Kylie, in their podcast series, Misunderstood Verses in the Bible, once said, Content without context leads to confusion. I couldn't agree more. They also add, Misunderstood texts lead to misapplied texts. And I am of the conviction that misunderstood texts are misunderstood because they're not read, studied, or interpreted in their context, be it the closest context or the more broader context. So, friends, let's once again let our fingers do a quick walkthrough, or let's even do another flyover of the context of Second Chronicles 7.14, which will be chapters 1 through 6. 
Chapter 1 includes King Solomon's prayer asking Yahweh for wisdom and knowledge and Yahweh granting his request. We see this in verses 8 through 13. In chapter 2, 1 through 16, Solomon requests assistance from the king of Tyre to build the house of the Lord. In chapters 3, 4, and 5, we see the details of the construction, the materials used, the furnishings, and the bringing of the ark into the temple, even Yahweh's glory filling it in a cloud. Chapter 6 records Solomon's dedication of this temple and his dedication prayer, which interestingly virtually supplies a precursor to our text under scrutiny. Just listen to 6, 24 through 30. If your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you and they return to you and praise your name and pray and plead before you in this house, in other words, the temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you have given to them and to their fathers. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you and they pray towards this place and praise your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants and your people Israel. Indeed, teach them the good way in which they are to walk and provide rain on your land, in other words, Israel, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. If there is a famine in the land, if there is a plague, if there is a blight of mildew, if there is locust or grasshopper, if their enemies besiege them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer or plea is made by anyone or by all your people Israel, each knowing his own affliction and his own pain, and spreading his hands toward this house, in other words, the temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place, and forgive and render to each according to his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of the sons of mankind. Did you hear that, friends? Were you listening with a detective's ears? Were you seeing with a detective's magnifying glass? Were you thinking with a Berean's mind? Yahweh's statement to Solomon in our verse under scrutiny, Second Chronicles 7.14, is virtually represented in Solomon's prayer of dedication. Now, friends, let's just listen to verse 13, the verse right before our verse under scrutiny. Let's see how it illuminates what will follow in verse 14. That verse we love to quote all by itself. I'm actually going to read verses 13 and 14 together. If I, and this is Yahweh, shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locust to devour the land, in other words, the land of Israel, or if I send a plague among my people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land." Now, friends, there's two things I want us to observe immediately. The first is that verse 14 is a continuation of the sentence begun in verse 13. It's unfair to divorce verse 14 from verse 13 and make it say something in isolation. The second is the fact that although Yahweh was okay with a house being built for him to dwell, 
It was only his relational residence with his chosen people. Notice in the tail end of verse 14, it says, I will hear from heaven. And I believe, friends, that Solomon understood this. Recall his prayer of dedication in chapter 6, particularly verse 21. Listen to the pleadings of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from your dwelling place, from heaven, hear and forgive. And friends, we must not leave out the admonitions of Yahweh that follow after 7.14, verses 17 through 19. But these are not the only admonitions in the second half of chapter 7. So I invite you to read 7.11 through 22 to get a more accurate feel of the immediate context. Friends, I sincerely hope that we are fast coming to realize that this promise in Second Chronicles 7.14 presupposes a very specific context. After all, the wording in Solomon's prayer of dedication reinforces over and over again that, quote, unquote, your people Israel are just that, his people Israel. Now, don't panic or be dismayed. We will see shortly that there is a proper and appropriate modern-day application of this text that doesn't spiritually bastardize it or make it say more than it was intended to teach. So hold your horses. Friends, we 21st century westernized Gentile Christians really do love our breadbox verses, don't we? When are we going to realize that our verse of the day is a mere crumb of bread? We really need us to start consuming whole loaves of bread, brothers and sisters. Jesus really laid it out, didn't he? Man does not live by crumbs alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. This one crumb a day version of reading the Bible has got to stop, friends. We're living in dangerous times. And as I said in our last session, especially dangerous spiritually. The scriptures are being spiritually bastardized right before our eyes in our evangelical churches virtually every Sunday. And can we discern this? How can we possibly function as Bereans who search the scriptures daily to see if the things being said in our pulpits are actually true? Read Acts chapter 17. I'm sorry, a crumb a day just won't cut it. A crumb a day will not equip us to rightly divide the word of God as Paul urged Timothy to do. This is a common problem, friends, not only among us Christians, but among non-Christians alike, skeptics and critics who love pulling verses out of context to attack the Bible. Our own poor pattern of reading has become consulting verses we especially like without much care in examining the context of these passages to make sure we're using them in a way the original authors meant for them to be used. Friends, I'm here to tell all of us that reading scripture this way virtually guarantees that we'll be guilty of misreading the text, which then naturally results in our misusing the text. And by misusing the text, I mean misapplying it in a 21st century environment. Well-intentioned Christians, especially in America, just love to quote our verse under scrutiny, Second Chronicles 7.14, and hold it up as the poster child verse for a promise from God if we believers in our nation would just humble ourselves and pray, the expected outcome being that God will then heal our land, the United States, of course. 
But I don't want to limit this application to America. Imagine that people in other lands may be doing the exact same thing. Quoting Second Chronicles 7.14 as if it was given to us believers universally as a divine promise from God just for us and for our nation, especially in our situation. I'm sorry, friends, but shame on us for manipulating Scripture to tell our story instead of allowing Scripture to tell its story. I said this several sessions ago, but it bears repeating right here. I decided many years ago that I would stop bastardizing Scripture myself and give more respect to the Holy Spirit, the author and inspirer of the Scriptures. I was convicted by this same Spirit that when I misread, misapplied, and subsequently mistaught the Bible, I'm disrespecting the author and inspirer, the Holy Spirit, according to Second Peter 1, 19-21. So, friends, as a teaching pastor, I hold myself accountable to James 3, 1 and 2 Timothy 2, 15. Well, friends, in today's text under scrutiny, the hard and sobering truth is that God promised Solomon that when the land of Israel suffered drought or pestilence, if the Israelites would humble themselves and cry out to Yahweh, Yahweh specifically said his eyes and ears would be attentive to their prayer made in this place. Hebrew reads prayer of this place, a reference to the newly dedicated temple. By reading Second Chronicles 7.14 in its immediate context, it becomes abundantly clear that this was a specific promise made by Yahweh to the Jewish people at the time of the first temple. In all sincerity, friends, the danger for us 21st century Christ followers is misreading our nation into these scriptures, our tendency to liken America to ancient Israel. And so we end up conjuring up all kinds of meanings for heal, political, medical, civil, national, relational, you name it. Our outcome that follows is that we naturally assume that the solution is praying more. You know, recruiting as many Christians as we can to pray. If we Christians would just pray more or pray more intensely, the answer will come. I actually picture this as Christians building prayer bricks to reach heaven's door, piling them up kind of like what happened at the Tower of Babel. Another picture I get is like a balancing scale. On one side we have our Christian prayers, and on the other side we have our answering God. How weighed down must our prayers be before God answers? Similarly, we Christians put our own label on my people, one that suits us. If we mean all Christians, we get in trouble. How can we get all Christians to pray? Should it be all Christians in our country, all Christians in our city? The dilemma here becomes, how many praying Christians does it take to meet the criteria in Second Chronicles 7.14? It almost sounds like, how many praying Christians does it take to change a light bulb? We Gentile Christians must be very careful we don't simply reach back into the Hebrew Scriptures, pull out random promises, and make them ours. Now, Second Chronicles 14 is obviously for the church, and obviously for America, or fill in your nation. All of a sudden, our nation becomes the new theocracy of God, when there was only one theocracy in all of human history, Israel. Friends, I think it's high time that we stop comparing America to Israel and start comparing America to ancient Babylon. Maybe if we did that, we'd be much more outreach and missional-minded. 
Isn't it interesting that no instruction is given in Second Chronicles for the Jews to pray in such a way that Babylon would be saved? You may say, well, Pastor Tom, what about Nineveh? Notice that Nineveh, in response to one man, humbled themselves and repented nationally. Hmm, kind of reminds me of James. The prayer of one righteous person avails much. Scripture has never instructed a body of believers to pray so that a nation would repent. And so is the case with Second Chronicles 7.14. You might chime in with, well, then what good is this verse? What are we supposed to get from it? Well, let me suggest some answers. First, it's always good for God's people to humble ourselves and pray for our nation. This is clear from 1 Timothy 2. Second, God does move in nations. Proverbs 14.34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Nations are transformed by God working in people's hearts, not necessarily through political advancements or influencing public policy alone. Third, if the church wishes to impact culture, we must do four things, the same four things in Second Chronicles 7.14. Humility, prayer, seeking, turning. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. James tells believers to turn in James 4.8. Read it! Friends, chronicles should stir us up, inspire us, revive us, get us back on track, loving God and obeying his word again. This is what the 21st century church needs. Amen. Amen. Well, we're at the end of our program, which will close with an email where you may write me. A Word from the Word is a listener-supported program, so kindly consider helping to keep this program on the air. Email me for the details. And thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with A Word from the Word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com that's a word from the word at minister.com